so today I'm going to be talking to you guys about um, does the fossil record support naturalistic evolution? And here's the deal. I've been told a long time ago in the sciences, they always say, don't make the title of your paper a question that you can answer yes or no to because someone can just say yes or no, and then they're done. They don't have to read it anymore. Um, and so I made that fatal mistake. But the reason that I started with a question is because I want you to be asking this question of yourself as we go throughout. And we'll be defining some terms. And there's a handout. Um, I don't know if you got that, but you can um, pick that up if you, if you do have it. And I'll be referencing that. Um, and what, what we kind of want to do today is, is look at the fossil record. Because the way it's typically presented is that the fossil record is like a slam dunk. The only way to understand the um, fossil record is through naturalistic evolution. That's kind of the way it's presented a lot of times. Um, and so we want to take a look at that and say, you know, is that really the case? And so, um, you know, when they asked me what I wanted to present on, I gave like a whole bunch of different talks that, that I could do. And, and I'm just like, every time I do something like this, I think, wow, I get to talk to people about fossils. Like, <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> what, you know, what are the chances that you get to just walk in and be like, hey, I get to talk about what I like to do all the time. Um, so that's what we're going to be doing. And, of course, the really exciting part is we get to talk about this from a biblical perspective. So um, just to tell you a little bit about me, you already heard some of this. Um, I want to put my family up there. They couldn't be here today. Um, they're, they're sticking around Santa Clarita, but I think they're going to be here next week. Um, so if you really want to see my kids, which you should, um, <laughs> then you can come next time. Um, and the reason I'm emphasizing, like, um, that PhD and that this is um, invertebrate paleontology um, I want you to understand that I'm not just some random person getting up here and talking to you about fossils. Because you don't know who I am, right? I mean, a few of you do. But, like, I mean, most of you, um, I could just be anybody. So, you know, do I have any kind of credentials for talking about this? And so um, I do, and I've done research, and I know that um, uh, Mike Barry mentioned a few times in, like, uh, Facebook posts and emails and things that, I was involved with research on Tyrannosaur cannibalism, and so if you want to know about that, I can talk to you about that later, and that's what that bone is up there. Um, but uh, what we want to look at today, as I said, does the fossil record support naturalistic evolution, or might there be another model that explains it better? Okay, so that's what we're going to be kind of uh, addressing as we move forward. And to start with, we've got to talk about, okay, what is naturalistic evolution? What do I mean when I say that? Okay, so um, evolution, just as a term, means change, right? And in the biolog biological sciences, when we say evolution, we mean um, change in living things over time, okay? Um, and this always, like when I say this in churches, it, it shocks some people, but it's true. All of us believe in some form of evolution. Uh, we all believe that animals and plants do change over time. So, for instance... Um, you know, if I were to go around the room, I'm sure many of you own dogs, right? You have different breeds of dogs, and some of you have mutts or things like that. But um, you can look at a Chihuahua and a Great Dane and a Pug, and you can tell the difference between those. Um, and yet you recognize them all as dogs. And those are all dog breeds that have come about through human history, right? People have bred dogs to come about with those different breeds. Um, and so none of those would have been the ex nihilo God-created dog, Right? It's not like when God was creating animals, um, out popped a pug, okay? Um, that is something that came about through um, just breeding them over time. And the same thing can happen in nature, right? You have coyotes and wolves that can still interbreed, and we recognize those as, as different species, um, but they are uh, certainly descended from the same ancestor. So um, 
what we want to talk about when we say evolution, we've got to kind of qualify and, and understand what we mean. And so when I say naturalistic evolution, um, this is a view of the origins of, we're going to say everything, I'm going to say the universe here. And I'm going to have two basic tenets here. Okay, the number one is that all things came about by natural processes over a long period of time. Okay, and there's two ideas wrapped up in there. One is what we call deep time, which is the idea of like really, really long periods of time. We're talking about uh, millions into billions of years of time. And then um, the idea of natural processes at work, and we'll get back to that in a minute. And then the other idea here is that all organisms can be traced back to a single common ancestor. We call this universal common descent. Okay, so you can see up there, there's a little evolutionary tree, right? And so the idea is that as time moves forward, and the time is the y-axis here, as time goes on, things get more and more and more diverse, and they all share a common ancestor. That's the idea of naturalistic evolution. And it's philosophically based in something called naturalism, okay? And there's different names for this. We're calling it naturalism today. Naturalism is a philosophical belief that all things that exist can be observed by the senses that only natural mechanisms are at play in the universe. Okay, so if you're to simplify it, naturalism says there is no supernatural. Okay, so this is, if you think back to um, the show Cosmos back in the day with Carl Sagan, um, he said the universe, or the cosmos, excuse me, is all there, um, all there is, all there ever was, all there ever will be, right? That's naturalism right there in a nutshell. Um, so you're not looking for things like leprechauns or fairies or angels or God, right? Those things are outside the realm of um, what you can observe with your senses is the idea. Um, and so they would say no miracles, nothing like that. It's, it's um, thrown out from the beginning. And obviously you can understand that that would be anti-biblical, right? Because we believe there is a God and that God does interact with the world. Um, but just to give you a brief overview of naturalistic evolution, um, something like 13.7 billion years, and this is debated exactly um, between like the 14 to 13.5 range, um, you have the Big Bang, right? And um, the universe, um, you know, kind of pops into existence there over time. And then um, you have the formation of the Earth about 4.6 billion years ago. And then you'd have the first life somewhere between 3.6 and like 4 billion years ago. And then um, you would have from that the evolution of all the different types of things. So up there, I just have animals, and I don't obviously have all the animals, but I'm just showing you how incredibly diverse, um, you know, and all these different things would come from it. And we would be among those animals. Oh, I thought that that was a laser. No, kind of. It's blinking at me. Okay, so um, maybe I'm like turning on somebody's car alarm outside. Um, so. Now, what's used as support, part of the thing that's used as support, it's not the only thing. Um, there's all kinds of things we could look at. But one of the big ones for seeing the kind of the direction that life has taken is the fossil record, right? So um, you can see up there the geologic column. No. And um, then there are some representative animals along there. And I put up there different, like, first appearances. So you can see as you look at the fossil record... Um, the lower you go, the more different things are than today, as a general rule. The, the closer you are up to the surface, the more it is like today. And um, this uh, is a real pattern, right? So I'll, I'll meet some people, some Christians who tell me like, oh, I don't think there's any order to the false record. Oh, I don't think there's a geologic column. I think it's all just a big mess. Um, well, no, there really is. So like you only find trilobites in the bottom part there. And you never find a trilobite buried with a dinosaur. And you never find a human buried with a dinosaur or buried with a trilobite. It just doesn't happen anywhere around the world. Um, so there's a real order that happens there. And that order 
um, is interpreted by naturalistic evolutionists to reflect the evolution of animals over time and plants and other things. Um, and so you find your first animals, then you find marine invertebrates, and then fish, amphibians, um, we're just talking about animals here, um, reptiles appear, and then mammals and birds, and eventually people. Um, so you look at that, and it's like, oh, well, yeah, I can see the pattern that they're talking about. I can see why somebody would say that. Um, and so what we want to ask then is how does this work, right? So at a most basic level, the process of naturalistic evolution works like this. Um, the idea is that diversity is preceding disparity. Okay, now those are weird words, and we don't usually use disparity at all. Um, and diversity can mean lots of things. So let me explain what I mean here. Um, diversity would be like um, within, let's say it this way, with, within a, a species or a taxon you're looking at, um, it would be the little changes that you see, right? So for instance, in this room, we're all humans, right? Um, that I'm talking to you right now on purpose. And, um, but I can see people of different heights and weights and skin color and hair color and eye color and all those different kinds of things. That would be the idea of diversity. Disparity would be really big changes between, for instance, body plans or, or um, very different kinds of things. So for instance, um, if I said everything that's living in this room right now, that's not just humans, right? There are, there's bacteria in here. Um, none, I don't think any of these trees are real. But, um, you know, you would have, there's certainly some little bugs somewhere. I'm not trying to say this is a dirty place. I'm just saying that's reality, right? Um, those things are very different than humans, okay? Um, and so that would be the idea of talking about disparity. So in a, um, if we look at the animals we have represented up here, um, diversity would be like the difference between a clouded leopard and a snow leopard versus disparity is between a leopard of any kind with a zebra mussel, right? Those are very different, very, very different body plans, different kind of animals. So um, the idea in naturalistic evolution is that little changes eventually add up to really big differences, okay? So you would start off with, and this is hypothetical, no one actually believes this, okay? But you'd start off with like a cat, and that cat would diverge into a snow leopard and a clouded leopard. And then over time, those two lineages one lineage would lead to something as different as a zebra mussel, okay? Now, no one actually believes cats evolve into mussels. I want to make sure you understand that. But that's the idea, is that you start off with really similar stuff, and over time, it diverges into things that are very, very different, okay? So what we're going to do is we are going to do kind of a survey of the geologic column, the fossil record, and we're going to make our way up there from the bottom to the top, and we're going to see, does this record we see actually match what is predicted by naturalistic evolution, okay? Um, and so I've put some stars there at some different spots we're going to look at. Um, we could look at many, many more, but we'd run out of time, okay? So I picked out some um, in particular that are, are kind of major spots in the fossil record here. Um, the first one we're going to look at is the very bottom there, and it's something that we call the Cambrian explosion, okay? Um, and you see this picture up here, and you can't read it, and that's okay. Um, the reason you can't read it is because it was a figure that was created for the journal Nature. And when you write a paper in Nature, you have to cram everything into like a tiny, tiny space. And so they took what should have been like four or five figures and made them into one picture, okay? And that's why it's like impossible to read. But I'm going to try and help you here, okay? Um, here's what's going on. On the y-axis, up and down, you have all the different types of animals that exist, okay? Um, and on the x-axis, you have time, okay? So... You can see at the very bottom there, you're moving from the deep past, which is on your left side, to the present, which is on the right side. 
And then the main thing you're looking at here are the yellow and the blue, okay? Um, blue represents phyla, okay? So take you back to biology, back in your middle school or high school years, okay? And you learned this thing that was like kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Does that make sense? Okay, so species is the most specific one. So we are homo sapiens, but we are in the same kingdom, right? With things like jellyfish and you know, dolphins and all kinds of stuff. Um, that's a really broad category, okay? So kingdom, phylum. Phylum is still a very, very broad category. For instance, mammals, reptiles, birds, fish, um, amphibians, things called sea squirts are all in the same phylum, okay? It's a really, really big category of stuff. So where do the different phyla appear in the fossil record, okay? Um, so when you look at the blue down here, and I realized it's blocked, and they told me, don't put stuff at the bottom of the slide. I'm like, I can't help it. It's a huge picture. Um, down here at the bottom, you see that blue bar? If you were to describe the shape of that, you'd say it's basically a rectangle, right? Um, that's really weird because what that means is pretty much every phylum that exists today showed up suddenly in the Cambrian, okay? Um, you didn't have a slow appearance of phyla over time. You'd expect a triangle, but you don't. You have a giant rectangle. And this is very, very peculiar. And it's been recognized this way for over 100 years. Um, and the more fossils we find, the more pronounced the edges are of this rectangle, okay? Um, and then if you were to look at the level below that, so kingdom, phylum, class, okay? So classes below it, so that'd be things like mammals are a class or reptiles or trilobites. Um, most of our classes also appear in the Cambrian suddenly, and then you only add a few more after that, okay? The large majority, you see this really, really straight line going down there? That's their first appearance. And they're all appearing at exactly the same time, almost all of them, right? And so that's very, very peculiar. And what kinds of things do we have here? Okay, we've got, um, well, actually, first, let's ask, where, what's below this? Okay, so if we go back to this one, um, you can see before the Cambrian is something called the Ediacaran. And there's not very much there. There's like, if you, those of you in the front may be able to see there's little tiny blue and yellow wedges. Um, so what is there? Well, um, below that, you have something called the Ediacaran biota. Okay, what are the Ediacaran biota? Your guess is as good as mine. Okay, so what happened was um, in Australia, they were discovered by accident, actually. Um, they found all of these impressions, basically, of weird things. Um, and they're like about this big to maybe about this big at most. And you can see an example of what they might have looked like over there. Um, all kinds of funny little things. Some of them kind of look like feathers. Some of them kind of look like... This is the most common one, Dickinsonia. It looks like a big pancake. Um, and it probably lived like a pancake. Um, as far as we can tell, it didn't really do a lot. Um, they kind of maybe flolloped around the, the seafloor. Um, and we don't even know what they ate. We can't tell where the mouth is. It's a very, very strange thing. Um, we know it's a living thing, but beyond that, we don't know a lot. They did just, I think last year, the year before, they found some um, uh, chemical residue on it, and they were able to determine that it's almost certainly not a plant, which implies it's probably an animal. Um, but some people suggested maybe they're their own kingdom. We don't really know what they are. And what you notice there is that these things don't really make good ancestors for the animals we have today, okay? They're just weird things that we don't know what they are. Um, and the interesting thing is, too, these animals also just suddenly appear in the fossil record. These animals, these creatures, we'll say, suddenly appear in the fossil record. Um, so what sorts of things do we find in the Cambrian? All kinds of stuff, okay? So there's a spot in Canada, in, um, in Alberta, British Columbia, um, 
it's mainly in British Columbia. It's called the Burgess Shale. Okay, it's a it's a layer up there, and they find excellently preserved um, fossils of tiny things. So Hallucigenia, the one that's like two down on, from the top right, um, that one is like this big. Okay, it's really tiny. But you can see preserved on it the legs, the gills on these animals, um, feeding appendages, all kinds of fun stuff like that. And there's um, thousands of fossils, hundreds of thousands of fossils out there. Um, and they're just exquisitely preserved. And then they've also found spots in China, too, and then other places where they found this kind of preservation. And so there's some really, there's trilobites, you can recognize those, and you know, things like that. But there's also really weird animals. So this is Opabinia right here. Um, Opabinia is my favorite one from the Cambrian. Um, it's about this big, okay, not very big. Um, it has five eyes, which we don't know of any living animals, to my knowledge, that have an odd number of eyes. Um, and then they have a proboscis with a grabber on it, but that's not their mouth. Their mouth is under their body. So I don't know what that's for, um, but that's interesting. And we don't really know exactly how to classify these things. Um, they're the one hallucigenia I said up there that's got the spines you can see sticking out. Um, for a long time, they didn't know which way was up, okay? Um, and so there was a lot of debate about that. And they finally figured out the things on the top are actually its legs. And then um, they weren't sure which end was the head was another problem. And so that was only recently just settled um, with some uh, really close-up um, scanning electron microscopy that could see that the head actually has a little tiny smile on it. Um, and that the other end they thought was the head was actually where all of its internal juices had been pushed out as a stain. So that's kind of nasty. But <laughs> fossils are dead animals, so it's, it is nasty. Okay. Um, now, why is all this important? Why are we talking about weird animals and stuff? Okay. At the Cambrian explosion, we see an abrupt appearance without obvious ancestry of things like hard parts. So having a shell, that's completely new. Um, complex eyes we see there. Trilobites have incredibly complex eyes. Multiple body plans. We're seeing things that look like worms, things that look like jointed you know, arthropod kind of things. We see things that look like clams. We see things that look like brachiopods. There's all kinds of body shapes already present. And we find complex appendages. So here's this guy. This is a fossil called Anomalocaris. Um, and this is what it would look like in life. Um, it's a really wild animal. So everything I was telling you so far is really small. This guy gets about this big, okay? Um, so it's a, it's a big animal. Um, and it's really, really complex and bizarre and unexpected. And so what is going on here? All right, so remember, with naturalistic evolution, the prediction would be that um, you would have this tree, right? Something like this, okay? But what's interesting about the Cambrian explosion is you can draw a line here, okay, and you're missing everything below that, okay? It's, you just have the branches up at top. That's what's going on. And then you're inferring the relatedness of these things, right? Um, you're making a, an evolutionary tree, a phylogeny that connects these, all right? You just have preserved. What's actually in the rocks are the top branches there. That's what you're seeing, okay? Um, and we would refer to this as disparity preceding diversity. So remember I said naturalistic evolution says the small changes should appear first and then big changes later. But with the Cambrian explosion, what we see is really big changes already in place, already big differences between different categories without the small changes leading up to them. Okay, and so that is unexpected. And this is something that Darwin wrote about in Origin of Species. That's how old this idea is. Um, and he said in Origin of Species that this is actually a considerable 
trying to word the phrasing he uses. He used lots of good words. Um, he said it was a challenge to his model. That, um, and, but he said, one day we will find the Precambrian ancestors to these animals. They're in the rocks. We just haven't found them yet. Now we're over 150 years later, and we're still not finding those things, right? Um, and so the argument used to be, oh, well, they're, you know, they're just there. We haven't found them yet. But we're finding Precambrian fossils, and they're not their ancestors, right? So then the argument was, well, the reason is because all the ancestors to the Cambrian animals are soft-bodied, and that's why we haven't found them in the fossil record. Well, the problem with that is every Precambrian fossil we have is soft-bodied, right? So we should have the ancestors then. And the reality is, even if their ancestors were soft-bodied and that's why we're not finding them, then we don't know where hard parts came from. How did shells evolve? Where did exoskeletons come from? We don't have any evidence for that, okay? And so what it's changed to is most people in the scientific community have accepted the Cambrian explosion as a real event. So what they would say is it was a rapid evolution of almost every body plan of animals in something like 10 to 20 million years. Okay, so let me give you a frame of reference for that. Um, horses are believed to have evolved from about this big to a modern horse over 50 million years. Okay, you're saying that every phylum of animal that exists, which is what Stephen Jay Gould would say, appeared in like 10 million years. Okay, that's a very, very different way of thinking. Okay, um, and so what we want to say now is, well, okay, well, that's weird. And everyone acknowledges it's weird. And you could say, oh, well, that's how animals started. So, of course, it's going to be unique. Of course, it's going to be strange. But do we see anything else like this in the rest of the fossil record? And my challenge would be, yes, we do. Okay, so let's jump up to the Carboniferous. Okay, this is in the Paleozoic. You can look at your little handout thing. In the Carboniferous, you have lots of amphibians. But at the bottom of the Carboniferous, you have almost no fossils of animals with legs at all. We call it Romer's Gap, okay? Um, it's a 14 million year gap in the lower Carboniferous where you just don't find four-legged animals, what we call tetrapods. Um, there's a few, there's some Wachirids. Um, I'll show you a Wachirid in a minute. And, um, they, and then recently in Scotland, they've started to find some pieces of things that are filling in this gap. Um, but we'll talk about in a minute why that's significant and what they're finding there. Okay, so to start, let's take a step back. Let's go in the Devonian, so below the Carboniferous, and you have the evolution of four-legged animals, tetrapods, okay? This is the evolutionary story, naturalistic evolutionary story, that fish evolved into these creatures. And so the transitional form um, that's mainly hailed here is Tiktaalik, and Tiktaalik, there's the fossil of it right there. That's the front half of it. They have found the back half too. It's a big animal, by the way. It could get about two meters long. Um, and Tiktaalik... Um, it is a really interesting animal. It does have fish characteristics, and it also has characteristics of four-legged animals. So it has scales and gills and fins like a fish, but it has a real neck, okay? And you might not think a neck is a big deal. You've always had one, right? Um, but it's a big deal for a fish, right? Because a fish, if they want to turn and look at something, they have to do this, right? Because they don't have a neck. They, well, technically, they have the neck bones, but it's connected to their shoulders, Okay. So they, but Tiktaalik actually has a real genuine neck where it could move its head a little separately than its shoulders. And it wouldn't be much. I mean, it'd be like, you know, but still that's a big deal, right? And also Tiktaalik has wrist bone, has a functional wrist, okay? So it looks like it could prop itself up on its fins, um, which is pretty cool too. And you can see, um, a little bit hard to see, but um, we have a tetrapod, something with four legs, four-legged animal over here, Acanthostega. And you can see its, um, its hips and its um, shoulder girdle. And then over there, you can see a fish one, Eustinopteron. 
and tiktaalik which is at the top there it looks like it's transitional it looks like it fills the gap between those things okay um and so i think it's fair to say that yeah this does look like a transitional form um and what do we think about that well i can tell you later if you're interested um, i don't think it is actually transitional and um but that's for another time okay um what i'm telling you we'll get there in the Devonian, you find things that look like they might be descendants of Tiktaalik in some ways, although they're weird. Um, Acanthostega and Ichthyostega. By the way, you can see their hands and feet at the bottom there. Um, if nothing strikes you as odd about those, maybe you're not really into anatomy that much. You don't spend a lot of time looking at skeletons. Um, that one has eight fingers, and that one has seven. Okay, so that's really weird. You don't have that, right? And this isn't like a weird mutation thing. Every specimen we have of those has that same number of digits um, for the one versus the other. And uh, that's very peculiar. And they're nothing like the fins of Tiktaalik you can see over here. So I think there is something unique going on here. But like I said, that's another talk for another day. The reason I'm telling you this is because if we jump up to the Carboniferous, let's, so that was stuff under Romer's Gap. Let's go above Romer's Gap. What do we see? It's completely alien. It's nothing like what we saw before. Um, you have amphibians with no limbs at all. Those are, um, they're called aestopods. They're fantastic. They're like snakes, but they're actually amphibians. You have Crassogyrinus over there, which is called the, t the tadpole from hell. Um, it's really terrifying. Um, it has a giant mouth full of sharp teeth, tiny little limbs. These look like, in an evolutionary term, very derived animals. And yet, they just suddenly appear once again without that ancestry. Um, and then you got Pederpes, which is our Wachira down there. Um, so... As we think about these animals, um, you're seeing this gap here and where there's no fossils. They say, oh, well, the problem is no fossils, right? Well, they've gone in and they've started to find fossils in the gap. And what they're finding are things that are just from the Devonian or from the Carboniferous. You're not finding the link between these kinds of animals and the things you find in the Devonian. There's no link between them and Acanthostega and Ichthyostega. And so once again, it looks like you have a sudden burst, a sudden explosion of different types of amphibians in the Carboniferous. If we go up to the Permian, we have another group of animals called non-mammalian synapsids. That's a mouthful. Back in the day, we used to call these mammal-like reptiles, but you can't say that anymore for reasons. Um, I can explain it later if you're interested. Um, but um, Dimetrodon is the most famous of these. You've seen him in like dollar store um, things where they're selling dinosaurs. He's not a dinosaur, by the way. He's actually more closely related to a mammal. Um, and when you look at them, there's two groups, pelicosaurs and therapsids. And you can see that the pelicosaurs go carboniferous in the Permian, whereas therapsids are exclusively Permian. But what happens when you take away the hypothesized relationships and just look at the fossil records of these animals? And you'll see you have two explosions again. Um, you have one appearance of pelicosaurs and a separate appearance of therapsids. And actually, that therapsid one is not very accurate. I blame Benton for this. He's, he's got some problems when it's in the Permian. Um, if you read a therapsid worker like Kemp, he would say that all the therapsid groups up there, um, except for cynodonts, all appear at exactly the same spot in the fossil record. And in fact, he said, it's a lot like the Cambrian explosion. He said, they evolved so fast, you can't actually make a reliable phylogeny. That's what Kemp said. It's impossible because they evolved so fast, right? Um, and he said, it's like what you see in the Cambrian. And it's also like, he says, what you see in the Cretaceous Paleogene explosion of mammals, okay? So um, if you jump higher up now, we're in the Mesozoic going into the Cenozoic. You can look at your little chart down there. Um, this is all the groups, all the orders of mammals today, most of them. Um, left out some extinct ones. But um, you can see 
a bunch of different mammals, things you're familiar with, bats and rabbits and whales and stuff like that. Um, what's really interesting is, let's not look at marsupials for a moment because they have a biased fossil record. Um, but if you look at the regular, the regular mammals, placental mammals, um, what you'll see is almost every single group just has a straight line going back to this boundary. Do you see that? Um, what does that mean? What that means is we have another explosion, right? We have almost every group of mammals, and this isn't just order, sometimes down to the family level, that just suddenly appear at this boundary um, without ancestry. And look, all the ancestry for these orders is inferred to be in the Cretaceous, where you're not finding the fossil record, okay? Um, and the same thing at this boundary happens with birds and with frogs and with freshwater fish, okay? So what is going on? My question is, why is everything exploding, right? Uh, what is going on with this? These patterns are not what you'd predict from naturalistic evolution, okay? You would predict there to be slow and gradual appearance of different groups, okay? So might there be other ways to interpret the fossil record? Well, we got a few. One is progressive creation. So this was really popular back in the 1700s and into the early 1800s. And the idea was that <clears throat> God made different animals and they were wiped out by catastrophe. And they made new animals, and they're wiped out by catastrophe. And he made new animals, and they're wiped out by catastrophe. And sometimes certain animals would survive on through, but that was kind of the way it worked, okay? Um, and that's how you explain the fossil record. And so that's what a lot of the people, like I said, back in the 1700s and 1800s really liked. Um, now, the problem with that is <clears throat> you don't find anything like that in the Bible, right? I mean, that's kind of weird. Um, and, like, does he not like his things? Like, is he, like, is it like an Etch-a-Sketch? You know, like, shake it and try. <laughs> like, that's kind of what it feels like, you know? Um, and so an alternative would be um, one that matches what the text of scripture says, which would be a young earth model where we have a flood and a pre-flood and post-flood time. Okay, now, if you look at the little thing I gave you, it has on there pre-flood, flood, and post-flood. These are interpretations, just like the naturalistic evolutionary interpretation of the fossil record, right? So I showed you data, actual animals, and the order they're in. But how we interpret that, that is based on our preconceptions, our worldview, the way we think. Um, and so I'm going to suggest to you um, that we may be seeing here evidence of the flood and of the post-flood time. Okay, so how would this work? Um, so let's look at the Cambrian explosion again. Okay, the Cambrian explosion deposits might represent some of the first things buried by the flood because they're catastrophic burial events. Um, everybody recognizes that now, evolutionist or creationist. Um, and these either represent, like I said, large pre-flood catastrophes or what I think most likely, these are some of the first animals buried by the flood. So as the flood is coming in from the oceans, it's going to bury things that are living in low water first, right? Which would be these kinds of animals, lots of benthic critters and all kinds of things like that. Um, when you're moving into the Carboniferous, right? You've got all these amphibians. Um, most of the Paleozoic rocks are marine, but you do get some terrestrial stuff then. Like I said, the first ones in the Devonian and they're very fish-like. And then as you move into the Carboniferous, you get some really weird animals. So could it be that these animals lived in a pre-flood environment that no longer exists, okay? And so that's why they needed something that worked between water and land. And so they had this unusual morphology because of the place where they lived. And that when that environment got destroyed by the flood, these animals could not reestablish themselves after the flood and went extinct. Um, and this was suggested by creationist Kurt Wise, um, an idea of a floating forest. And if you want to know more about that later, um, I'd love to talk to you about it, but it has to do with the kinds of plants we get in coal deposits um, in places like the Appalachians. Okay, what about in the Permian, right? Well, the evolutionary opinion is um, they evolved because of changing environment, right? Massive swamps turning into what they called fragmented forests. 
But maybe the reason we're seeing what look like fragmented forests is because the flood is destroying an environment and spreading it out, right, as it's being buried. Um, and so Permian communities then might actually be a combination of pre-flood ecosystems being preserved by the flood and short-lived flood communities. So the flood, we often think of it like, oh, the rain came down, the water came up and killed everything. In 40 days, it was done, right? Um, that's like the Sunday school version. Okay, now, that's not remotely true. Okay, first of all, it's a very long event. Looks like if you add up the time, it looks like it's around a year that the flood happens. Um, it just rains straight for 40 days. Um, secondly, if we're right about there being a lot of plate tectonics during the flood, you have a lot of land masses being pushed up and down. You have really complex deposition happening and sedimentation. And so you would have animals that could survive for a while, different land masses getting buried at different times, and they might get put themselves in really unusual situations um, that you get preserved. So for instance, there's a spot in Texas, in Oklahoma area, um, where they have Permian deposits with Dimetrodon and sharks, okay? And Dimetrodon, no one really inferred it to be a particularly aquatic animal, okay? Um, but according to my colleague, and he, he gets a little bit extreme sometimes. He's an evolutionist, but um, he gets a little bit animated sometimes. So um, I haven't seen the fossils myself, but this is what he says, is that there are um, Dimetrodon bones with shark tooth marks on them and shark cartilage with um, Dimetrodon tooth marks on it and Dimetrodon bones with Dimetrodon tooth marks on it. So it just sounds like a feeding frenzy, like everybody was going after each other. Um, that's really weird. Like that's not typically something you see in a normal environment. Um, but it could be something you would see in a very desperate, you know, um, kind of we're going to survive at any cost kind of environment. Um, and so maybe you are occasionally seeing um, animals trying to survive during the flood and that being preserved in the fossil record. Okay, now what about the stuff at the top there, the paleogene things, the Cretaceous to paleogene, the mammals and the birds? Well, we think for many reasons that the Cretaceous-Paleogene boundary represents probably the end of the flood and that all the rocks deposited afterwards are likely after the flood. And there's really good reasons for that. Um, and if so, what you're seeing is that if the flood wipes out everything that has the breath of life in its nostrils, except the stuff on the ark, right? Then after the flood, animals would need to go and repopulate the earth. And so it's kind of like the ark door opens and it's go. It's amazing race, right? Everybody has a chance to go and recolonize. Some animals are going to do really well, and other animals are not going to do very well. And it looks like in the modern world we have, the animals that did really well were mammals and birds specifically, um, did exceptionally well. They colonized the earth, they began to diversify, and that's why their fossil record just suddenly starts showing up all around the world. Um, now, you might ask, well, why aren't those animals lower in the fossil record? And that's a really good question. Um, also, why are there no people fossils? Weren't there people destroyed by the flood? Yes, that's the whole point of the flood, right? Um, so what's going on there? Well, what we can say right now is we don't know. Don't know why that's the case. Um, everybody's got mysteries for the naturalistic evolution. It's evolutionist, it's the Cambrian explosion. For us, it's the lack of human fossils down there. Um, but it's not as shocking as you might first think. For instance, we don't know how widespread people were. We don't know what continents they lived in. I doubt people would have liked to have lived with dinosaurs. Probably would have been not a very pleasant thing for the most part. Um, and also, if people are mainly coastal, as we know people today are, most population centers are on the coast, that what's going to happen is if you have a big tsunami wave coming in and it brings something back out to the ocean, that will not be preserved as a fossil. The only things that get preserved as fossils are things that get washed into the center of a continent, into a basin, 
where they can get preserved as a fossil. Things washed out to sea are going to be destroyed by all kinds of different things. Um, and so I think that's a good reason why we don't find a lot of these kinds of fossils is that probably they didn't get preserved. Um, but, you know, like I said, that's something we don't know. And so we have hypotheses and we can test those and move forward. But ultimately, we don't know exactly about that. Um, but to give you a good example of this, um, the same colleague I was telling you about earlier who works in, in the Permian in Oklahoma in Texas, um, he asked me one time, if, if the creation model is true, why don't you find frogs in the Carboniferous? And that may not mean anything to you, but frogs are everywhere today. And anywhere that's swampy, you will find frogs, okay? You look at the Carboniferous rocks, and they're full of amphibians because it's swampy, but there's no frogs. And so why is that? And what I told him is because frogs are everywhere today because they got the chance, right? Art door opens, frogs go out. And frogs do exceedingly well, okay? Back in the fossil record, your amphibian fossils, you have tons of different types of amphibians. You have high disparity. Today, you have only three kinds of amphibians. You have frogs, you have salamanders, and you have something called Sicilians. They look like worms. They're really weird. You can look them up later. Um, frogs. We have more species of frogs today than we have living mammal species. That's really weird, okay? And it's because frogs got that. They were able to diversify um, and could kind of conquer the world for the amphibian side of things. Um, so what do I mean by that? Well, in the, the Cenozoic world, we see a record of change, and we can see animals changing in response to their environments. Um, for instance, we can see horses change. So this is horses. It's likely that the horse that Noah brought on the ark was about this big. You could carry it over both of them. You know, you picked them up and brought them on the ark like that. And they would have had four toes in the front, three toes in the back. And then over time, within their created kind, they diversify to be the big horses we have today that walk on one toe each. Um, and you say, doesn't that sound like evolution? I said, well, yeah, remember, everybody has some form of evolution. Animals do change. And frogs diversified and fish diversified to meet the changing environments um, in the post-flood world. Initially, we see a tropical and wet world in the, in the lower Cenozoic, moves to grasslands, and then moves to the Ice Age. And so when we talk about this, we, in creation science, talk about something called baromenology. And this is the study of created kinds, okay? And so um, instead of predicting that everything shares a common ancestor, we believe God made different kinds of animals. But we believe those different kinds have the ability and potential to change, but they change within boundaries, okay? So instead of seeing one giant tree of life, what we see is an orchard of life, okay? Where you might have certain trees, like you have a dog tree or a horse tree. And I don't mean like there's a tree you can go and pick a dog from and take it home. Like I'm saying like it's an evolutionary tree of dogs. You could say it that way or of horses, but it's restricted. It doesn't connect to the one with people or to the one with fish or insects. Um, and so what you can see there is that we would predict disparity preceding diversity in the creationist model. And in fact, that is what we see in the fossil record is the idea of very different creatures and then watching them diversify as you go in the fossil record. Okay, so let me conclude because we've got to wrap up. I know this was fast. I meant to warn you at the beginning, but I forgot, so that's my fault. Okay. Um, <clears throat> okay, the fossil record does agree with naturalistic evolution in some ways. So you'll meet creationists who tell you there's no transitional forms. Okay, look, there are animals you could say are transitional forms. It's okay to be honest about that. Um, but I think ultimately it doesn't really support the naturalistic evolutionary hypothesis and predictions really, really well. Okay, and I'm not the only one. Here's Stephen Jay Gould. He's an evolutionist um, who died a few years ago. Here's what he said. 
<clears throat> talking about uniformitarians and catastrophists and how they argued back in the 1800s. He says, uniformitarians, um, the traditional opponents of catastrophism, did not triumph because they read the record more objectively. Okay, I want you to notice that. It's not that the record itself fit the idea of long ages and evolution over time better. Rather, uniformitarians like Lyell and Darwin advocated a more subtle and less empirical method. Use reason and inference to supply the missing information that imperfect evidence cannot record. The literal record, notice he says here, is discontinuous. But gradual change lies in the missing transitions. Okay? So, and this is something that Gould was really big on when he was alive. He was pushing to punctuate equilibrium, that most species are evolving very rapidly in short bursts. Um, but what I want to point out to you there is that the record by itself does not automatically support naturalistic evolution. And you're hearing a naturalistic evolutionist tell you the same thing. It's an interpretation you put on the rock record. Now, he would say it's a really good interpretation. I would say it is an interpretation, but I don't think it's the best one out there. So you say, oh, well, you think that the creation one is the absolute best one. Well, to be completely honest at the moment, no. Now, what I mean by that, hold on, before you start throwing your, your spears and stuff, okay? I think the biblical one is always the right one. But when it comes to the science, we don't have all the answers yet, okay? Why? Because we're lacking in manpower, right? There's tens of thousands of evolutionary scientists working all the time, and there's like, I can name the number of creationists, paleontologists, PhDs on my fingers, okay? Um, there's not very many out there. Um, we don't have the funding to do those kinds of things. Um, we don't have the time to do those kinds of things. Um, you know, that's how it works. You're starting a new paradigm, a new model. It's going to take a long time to be able to work through that. But listen to me, that doesn't change the fact of the truth of scripture, okay? So regardless of whether the Paleozoic is flood, pre-flood, or post-flood, the Bible is still true. Does that make sense? Okay, that those things are separate issues. They're related, but what we think in science is influenced by scripture, but it doesn't change the truth of scripture. And we'll be talking about that in the, the next message. Um, and you know what? That's perfectly fine. I'm content with that. Because here's the thing. That's how science works. It's always growing and changing. So I gave you some ideas here. And you know what? I might come back in 10 years and I might have some different ideas. But the truth of scripture is unchanging. How we interpret that is where our different thinking comes in. And we try to understand it. And that's why I'm really excited, by the way, about our programs we have at Masters, okay? And so I want to do a quick plug. We have a geoscience program here. You have somebody in your church who is a geoscience major. Where is Josh? Right there. Look at this guy, okay? Um, yeah, you can clap for him. So it's a really cool program because we're encouraging them to get out there and be scientists, okay? And that's really exciting. They get to do that from a biblical perspective and be good scientists, ones who are committed to trying to understand the data and work really, really well. Um, we also have a good biology program. We have a biology graduate back there. Um, so uh, thank you for your time. I'm told I need to end at 10.15, so I'm wrapping it up now. And I'll be around for questions in between if you want. Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for all the wonderful things you show us in your creation. I wish we had more time to look at them all, but um, it is amazing. And I thank you even more for your word and for that it shows us things that we otherwise would not understand. And so I pray that you'd help us to have a biblical mind, mindset where we're reading your scriptures and helping that, using that to help understand the world that's around us. Um, give us understanding, help us to have good fellowship with one another, and it's in your name I pray. Amen.